What can we learn today about the fall of Rome? Yasha Monk will be here to talk about Edward Watts' book, Mortal Republic. Why are so many novelists these days turning to fictional drugs? Jonathan Lethem will be here to discuss. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Yasha Monk joins us now. He is the author of The People versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. We'll talk about that a little bit. But he also reviews this week a book by Edward J. Watts called Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. Yasha, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So the last time we met was in Athens. I feel like we have this like classical history thing going on. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah, we went straight from uh, the Athenian democracy to the Roman Republic. That's right. All right. The Roman Republic, this is a new history, or builds itself as a new history of the fall of the Roman Republic. So let's just start with that very premise. I mean, is there an accepted or dominant version of why the Roman Republic fell, or is it constantly a subject of debate? I actually studied history as an undergrad, even for now, more of a political scientist. And I was always struck by the phrase that two historians would regularly uh, say to each other when they met in the dining hall or something, you know, what's new in the 16th century or what's new in the 3rd century BC? I feel like there's no historical period in which the historical interpretation is ever completely settled. Uh, and certainly uh, the, the the causes of the downfall of the Roman Republic is something that's been in dispute for a very long time. Niccolò Machiavelli tried to interpret the downfall of the Roman Republic in one kind of way in order to serve his political agenda in, in the 15th century, in 16th century. And people have gone on arguing about it through, through Gibbons all the way down to, to this day. And what Watts does in his book is to implicitly make an argument about uh, America today. Thus the tyranny in the subtitle. And I want to get to that a bit later. But let's first talk about what Watts's version of events is. So he basically argues, first of all, that at its inception, the Roman Republic was so successful because of its political institutions. To me, the most vivid story he tells in the book is about the moment when Rome nearly fell under the domination of Pyrrhus of Epirus, who had defeated the Roman armies, uh, looked like he may make a beeline for Rome, and then uh, offered Rome a relatively lenient peace treaty. And a lot of the senior statesmen in Rome were tempted to accept that peace treaty. And most people know him today, I imagine, because of the phrase Pyrrhic victory. Exactly. So it turns into a Pyrrhic victory. And part of the story of how it turns into a Pyrrhic victory is that this very old senator who's blind, Appius Claudius, comes into the Senate and appeals to the honor of Romans. He says, I have long thought of the unfortunate state of my eyes as an affliction. But now that I hear you debate shameful resolutions which would diminish the glory of Rome, I wish that I were not only blind, but also deaf. And so the senators uh, take pause and con- decide to keep on fighting because they have to sort of project their strength. And, and the way that Watts tells us, this is the first sign of the strength of these institutions, that people take this immense pride and that they pay deference to the wisdom of older statesmen. Um, so that's the first part. And when Pyrrhus uh, isn't able to bully Rome into submission, he tries to carry out his next plan, which is essentially to bribe his way into victory. So the Roman Republic sends a senator... Fabricius, who is uh, very distinguished but also very poor, to negotiate with him. And Pyrrhus says, look, I'm going to give you so much money that you're going to become the wealthiest man in Rome if essentially you betray your country. Fabricius responds in a way which for Watts encapsulates the sort of second big foundation of a Roman Republic. He has this lovely phrase where he essentially says, look, the only thing I need in order to be successful in Rome is honor. With honor, I can have the highest offices in the land, and the highest offices in the land give me the most worthy kind of life. So I don't care about your money. And he says no to him. Now, that's the foundation of Rome. What happens over the next few centuries is the vet starts to crumble, that you get more and more inequality, that a lot of the most poor Romans don't really get redressed in the political system, that the institutions aren't able to look out for the interests. And so you start to see the rise of, you know, essentially the populist leaders, People like Tiberius Gracchus who say, look, we are going to do something for you, even if it means breaking these very long traditions of our republic. Tiberius Gracchus here functions as the sort of most overt analogy to our current times. I mean, is, is he the, the Donald Trump of this book? 
in in Watts's view? In Watts's view, I think that is the case. I think what he would say is that uh, in two important senses. Uh, in the first sense is that he uh, breaks some of the basic norms of the republic. He doesn't technically do things that are illegal, but he appeals to a popular council in a way that had not been done previously, which is technically legal, but a complete breach of precedent in order to ride through his land reforms. And this results in the first real incidence of civil violence that the Roman Republic has experienced in centuries. And it's really the beginning of a downward spiral. So that's one sense. But the other sense, which is important to Watts, is that Gracchus does speak for some legitimate grievances. And that therefore, it is in part the failure of a senatorial class to actually ensure that the bulk of Roman citizens get a fair deal which makes it possible for Gracchus to break those norms, which drives the anger, which allows him to become such a popular tribune. So if the strengths of the Roman Republic, according to Watts, were its political institutions, the strength of its institutions and its political ideals, were the weaknesses there all along? Were there structural weaknesses that enabled those norms to be shattered or did they only emerge over the course of time? Well, I think what he would say is that the institutions were very well set up when they were founded. And here, of course, is another parallel potential to the United States. Over centuries, the underlying reality of Rome changes a lot. Rome goes from a small city-state with a few possessions in its immediate vicinity to essentially a huge empire. The number of citizens increases rapidly and the complexity of its economy becomes much, much more difficult to manage. And so I think you would say that the institutions fail to adapt to that. The patricians the most affluent people, the most noble people in the city fail to pay proper regard to the interests of the bulk of citizens. And so as a result, the institutions that worked so well 200 years earlier are no longer able to mediate those political conflicts successfully. And so in Watts's view, was the fall of Rome inevitable or was it the function of certain sort of bad actors who entered into the system and then took advantage of its weaknesses? So it's not clear to me that he clearly answers that question. There's perhaps a little bit of a tension between those two things in his account. I think I'm going to try and speak for him here, that he would say it's a little bit of both. So it's definitely the case that there are these structural tensions that keep rising over time. But they might have been resolved. They might have been resolved if the senatorial class, if the patricians had been more cognizant of a need to actually deliver for ordinary Roman citizens. And it might also have survived if there hadn't been so many political entrepreneurs in the century after Tiberius Gracchus who exploited that anger for their own personal gain by disregarding the old institutions and norms of a republic and propelling what essentially became just an endless series of minor and increasingly bloody civil wars. How persuasive did you find Watts' interpretation of these events? I found it quite persuasive. I mean, I, I have to say that I wasn't aware, I didn't remember not having studied Roman history that much in the last years, just how turbulent the century after Tiberius Gracchus was. What century are we talking about? So this is the, the first century mm -hmm. B.C., essentially. Tiberius Gracchus lives at the tail end of the second century B.C., and so it takes another hundred or so years for the Roman Republic to fall. And I sort of thought that there was these flashpoints of huge conflict, which were punctuated by real moments of calm. And uh, as you read this book, it becomes very clear that the moment these basic norms are breached with Tiberius Gracchus and his younger brother, there's really very few moments of calm left. You essentially end up getting this continuation of political brinkmanship, one politician after another being willing to do whatever is in their interest, even if it breaks very long-standing traditions of how conflict is mediated. And so quickly you get the threat of civil war within one generation of Gracchus, and then within two generations you get outright civil war. And so it's a long, bloody descent into chaos and violence and ultimately the downfall of a republic. And and, and I did find that quite Scary, because I think the image, and we haven't quite said that name yet, but the image that he conjures is this analogy to Donald Trump. And so the idea, in my mind, that I got reading the book is that we now stand at the beginning of this long process of decline, potentially, where, you know, when you write about the downfall of the Roman Republic, you don't necessarily think of Tiberius Gracchus, but he stands sort of at the beginning of that. And in a similar way, the argument that Watts would make the beginning of a potential process of downfall of the American Republic 
is our inability to deliver for people, the way that gives rise to popular tribunes like Donald Trump, the way in which they discard all of the rules and norms of our political system. And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to destroy democracy in our country, but that over the next hundred years, if we don't manage to resolve the underlying tensions, we might suffer a similar fate. And as an image, as a guiding sort of metaphor, I found that to be at least very suggestive. The book itself, uh, at times, I think, strays too far from the basic analysis which he promises mm -hmm. into a blow-by-blow -blow account of, uh, you know, the particular shifts in allegiances and the particular campaigns and the particular general who threatens Rome in this kind of way. So it can get a little bit too much into the weeds and you can lose the overall narrative thread a little bit. But that in itself only drives home the point of just how full of agony that century after Tiberius Gracchus was. But how explicit is Watts in this analogy? I mean, does, did he set out to write this history of Rome post-2016 after the election? Does he, in this text, sort of stick to the history at hand? Or is he constantly making parallels to contemporary American politics? He's pretty explicit about that at the outset. He says that if we're to avoid the fate that ultimately fell Rome, quote, it is vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked, what it achieved and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. So he does pretty explicitly set up the perils that America is a republic itself, that it was founded with the founding fathers thinking very carefully about the fact that when they set out on this experiment, there had barely been any republics that had actually been stable, that one of the most successful examples was Rome, but it had worked well for centuries, but eventually declined. And so he argues that that peril is in fact written into the history of our founding. Uh, as the book progresses, he doesn't sort of keep getting back to it. So, you know, he talks about it in the introduction. He talks about it a little bit in the conclusion. The bulk of the book is a relatively straightforward account of the fall of Rome. So there's no Trump bashing on page 137. Right. But it certainly is set up to help the reader ruminate with historical perspective on the political moment we're living through now. Let's talk about some of the specific parallels that Watts outlines that between the Roman Republic in the American democracy today. So one of them you mentioned earlier was growing inequality, growing income and political inequality, I'm assuming, and then a sort of popular rage against the elites. Were there others that he, are those the two main ones? Well, one of the important ones is this sort of loss of public spiritedness, right? I mean, the stories that are told at the beginning set up very nicely this sense that the greatest thing a Roman citizen can do is not to become very rich. It's not to somehow have fame in the arts or something like that. It is to serve the state. And when you become a military commander, you don't expect any private gain from it. You expect, if you do a good job, to get accolades. Uh, and perhaps it might even be a stepping stone for different forms of public office. But that's it. Over the course of the history of Rome, that goes away. I mean, you can suddenly make a lot more money. People are much more motivated by that. You start to need money in order to actually be successful in politics in a way that wasn't true earlier. And perhaps the most striking transformation is within the armed forces. Suddenly generals no longer fight wars, which the Senate has decided on as a necessity in order to serve Rome. They want to go and plunder other countries, conquer other countries in order to plunder their goods because that will make them phenomenally rich and it'll give them the political standing to dominate back in Rome. And so the military so is privatized in certain ways. Yes, exactly. Now, of course, today the military is not privatized, but the sense that a sense of public spirit is going away and that it is today more exciting to be the founder of an important startup than it is to be the United States senator that perhaps you get more respect in the country, that you get to have a more exciting life. I think there's a parallel there. The the other part of it, the public spiritedness, I mean, this you can't fully blame on Trump or solely blame on Trump. It's sort of we're a long way from ask not what your country can do for you. That process has been decades in the making. Yeah, and, and in that sense, I think there is, um, but that to me is a clear parallel between the Roman Republic and our moment, which is to say that you can't understand Tiberius Gracchus certainly as a straightforward villain. First of all, land reform was in many ways a reasonable cause. 
and he spoke for real frustrations of people which had been bailed over a very long time. Uh, now, it also so happens that he was one of the first links in a long chain that uh, led to political catastrophe. And I think it might be possible to think about our current political predicament in a similar way. There's no way in my mind that something like Donald Trump would have been possible if there hadn't been deep failures of a political system before. All right, let's pivot to your book, which does not have the word tyranny (laughs) in the uh, title or subtitle, but certainly within the book. Your book came out earlier this year, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. But it touches on some of these same themes in a contemporary context. So what's the argument of your book? Yeah, so there's a few arguments there. The first argument is that a liberal democracy really is in danger around the world. For me, a liberal democracy is a political system. This has nothing to do with liberal and conservative, Democrat or Republican, that aims to preserve two basic values. First of all, that we have individual freedom, that we get to decide what to say or not to say, what to write or not to write, who to worship or whether to worship at all. And secondly, that together we govern ourselves, that we have some amount of collective self-determination. And I think that the system which we assumed was absolutely stable in countries like the United States, in Germany, where I was born, uh, in the United Kingdom, in Sweden, is now under very real strain and threat. Uh, That we see a lot of people being less committed to democracy, some citizens being more open to straightforwardly authoritarian alternatives to democracy. And the rise, and this is the most obvious parallel to the Watts book, of populist parties and politicians who often feed on legitimate grievances, but channel that into a deep disrespect for the basic institutions we need in order to sustain those two values. And we see that in the form of Donald Trump in the United States, but we also see it in the form of many other politicians around the world, whether it's Narendra Modi in India, something like Viktor Orban in Hungary, or the newly elected Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. You wrote your book. This came out early in 2018. I'm assuming you were working on it in 2017, end of 2016. And we're talking now on Thursday, December 27th. Do you feel more or less pessimistic than you did when the book came out? How how have the events of 2018 in this country, in the United States, sort of borne out what you were writing about? Research I've done shows is that populists tend to damage democratic institutions in a large number of cases. Uh, But not in all cases. Often the opposition manages to fight back and preserve the basic rules and norms of of the political system we need in order to to sustain democracy. And by the way, rules and norms always sounds a little bit airy. Why do we care about those rules and norms? Well, I'm talking about basic rules and norms like the fact that when you lose an election, you leave office. If we don't have that rule, if people don't adhere to that norm, then political conflict turns into violent conflict, as it did in ancient Rome. And so that's the things that I'm really concerned about. Now, I think over the last year or two, developments have been more dramatic than many political scientists assumed in 2016. We've seen Donald Trump not just take complete control of the Republican Party, but also start to abolish the independence of uh, law enforcement agencies. We have seen rapid politicization of the Department of Justice. The Mueller inquiry still appears to be in serious danger. We are starting to see more direct control, potentially even over things like the armed forces with the departure of Jamalis. We'll have to see how that plays out. We are obviously seeing a deep delegitimization of the media in this country. And all of that is very concerning. Now, at the same time, the United States, thankfully, has a very federal structure. It has frequent elections. And we're starting to see the signs of a pushback against Donald Trump as well. So in that sense, the midterms, I think, were very important because they do uh, ensure that Donald Trump no longer has unitary control over the government. It's going to allow Democrats to uh, exercise some accountability over the president, particularly in the House of Representatives. And so I am, on the whole, uh, more convinced that Trump really is a serious threat to democratic institutions than a year ago, but also perhaps a little bit more hopeful that the institutions of the American Republic and of the opposition is going to be able to push back. Do you think it's going to be the opposition that does it, or do you think that change is going to have to happen within the Republican Party? Well, I think it has to be both. So... 
in order to have a functional political system, you have to have all of the major political forces committed to the basic rules and norms of liberal democracy. Now, my argument is that Donald Trump is not committed to those norms in that way, since he has now taken effective control of the Republican Party. I no longer believe that the Republican Party is either. And so the first step has to be to boot out the people who disrespect the most basic elements of our republic from office. But the second step has to be to build a second party, because we don't want to become a one-party state, right. that does have that kind of respect for those rules. And since the United States is a politically complex country in which a lot of people are right of center, we realistically will need some kind of right of center party that is robustly conservative in whatever way, but that does respect the rules and norms of a political system in that manner. So in my mind, the first step towards Salvation would be, speaking personally, for Democrats to win in 2020 because I don't see that change happening in the Republican Party before then. But the second step, which is perhaps just as important, would be for the Republican Party to reform itself or for a new center, uh, right of center party to come about that returns to that kind of respect for basic democratic institutions. A few minutes ago, you outlined a number of things that would certainly, you said you called them, I think, somewhat concerning, but some people on the non-Trump supporters might call them terrifying, you know, the, the, the threat to the Mueller investigation, the departure of Mattis. What is the thing among those that sort of keeps you, and the other things you outlined, what keeps you up at night? What's the biggest threat? Well, to me, the biggest threat is the personal loyalty that Trump has built from his followers. You know, he jokes that he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and survive it. And and as so often, there's a certain amount of insight in that sort of mad statement. A lot of people would still stand by him. And so... And that he said before he took office. Yeah, he did. And so there's, you know, these, these quite scary polls about whether people would accept an election being pushed back. Now, obviously, people never break democratic rules in a sort of cartoonishly evil way. They don't sort of, you know, twist their thumbs in public and say, you know what, I'm doing this because I want to be dictator. But they would come up with some kind of plausible reason that there's a terrorist threat or there's some kind of international crisis. And so unfortunately, we have to push back the election. I'm not saying that this is going to happen. I don't think it will. But the fact that if it did happen, a significant portion of Trump's electorate would go along with it, to me is deeply scary. Now, before the election in 2016, in one of the debates, Donald Trump said, well, we'll see, you know, what happens if I lose the election, whether or not that's going to be legitimate, whether I'll accept the outcome. Uh, later, he corrected himself and said that he would accept the outcome. But that hasn't been tested because he won. And even after he won, he claimed that there had been this massive vote of fraud. So let's wait to see what happens in 2020. Even if Trump does lose, which is not to be taken for granted, will he quietly leave the stage? Or will he try to cling to power? Or will he do a middle path where he leaves but says, this is illegitimate. I don't regard uh, my successor as a legitimate president. And people should go out and protest and wreak havoc. That could be a pretty dangerous moment. All right. To return to the book that we discussed earlier and you reviewed this week, Edward J. Watts's Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. Do you see this as a, as a, as a reasonable parallel to the United States today? Yeah, I think, look, any analogy is in parts true and in parts untrue. That's virtually the definition of an analogy. I think that it's very resonant. Uh, there are some obvious similarities. I think that they allow us to think through our present with fresh eyes, which is one of the great things that historical writing can do for us. I also think that there are some obvious disanalogies, most of which uh, the author Watts is very clear about, some of which perhaps he could be more clear about, but that is all to be expected. So I certainly found myself uh, reflecting on our current political moment in a new way by reading this book, and that was a very enjoyable experience for me. All right. Gasha Monk was, until very recently, a lecturer at Harvard University, moving to Johns Hopkins University next year? Uh, yes, at the start of the year. Excellent. And the author, most recently, of The People versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Gasha, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Joining us now is Jonathan Lethem. His latest novel is The Feral Detective, but this week he writes about some other novels, including one earlier novel of his own, which look at fictional drugs in fiction. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Pamela. So what role have drugs played in literature historically? Let's go back to previous <laughs> previous decades. Well, it's really fun to sort of speculate on this theme as it moves back in time, because if you want to count it, you know, you've got fictional drugs, magical potions, concoctions, all the way back into, obviously, mythology and, you know, Homer. There are these, uh, you know, visits that people take to other worlds. And, you know, at, at the same time, I think that there's something that happens in the in the 20th century when pharmacology becomes a real part of daily life. It sort of moves out of the realm of magic and into something like the prosaic. It's still a place where life goes to be altered or transformed or, you know, doors open into the unreal, but it somehow it stops being, it's, it's the realm of science, it's the realm of medicine, and also the idea of recreational drug use. You know, when uh, Homer uses uh, some esoteric potion in, in the Odyssey to induce a dream, it still doesn't have this quality of the William S. Burroughs, you know, sorting through the pile of pills on the drugstore cowboy bedspread and saying, oh, here's the good one. You know? Right, right. So I think for me, there's a different quality that overtakes it in the especially post-war American milieu, you know, with people like Burroughs and, and Philip K. Dick. And I mentioned Terry Southern, who, you know, people forget that he wrote influential fiction, but it's all through the kind of counterculture fiction. Obviously, the Beats took a lot of drugs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when they wrote in a more fantastical way, which is what Burroughs did, they took fictional drugs. This connection of it to the everyday world of you know medicine and mother's little helpers, or but what it interests me most is when real concoctions aren't enough, when the writer has to make up something that doesn't exist. Drugs in general, whether they're fictional or real, I guess I think of them as, as, as certainly the real ones as going into two categories. You have your sort of drug addiction narratives, which are its own thing, and often, frankly, in the form of memoir, maybe even more than in fiction. And, and that goes in one direction and, and not the direction that I think we're going to talk about here generally. And then other perhaps fictional drugs, which seem to me to function like a form of magic in what might otherwise be realistic fiction, like a way to introduce. Yeah, I think that's right. They're 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 magical, but they also connect to a place in life experience where we know that some kinds of drugs do change us or alter our states or give us opportunities to play at being different. I mean, that's as ordinary as the role of alcohol in narratives. You know, I mean, if you read Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano, that mezcal that he's constantly drinking is, in a way, it's a gateway into the stream of consciousness, supercharged dark night of the soul that the, the main character undergoes through that book. And so it's magical. And at the same time, it connects to a place where many of us have felt touched by the possibility, the risk of being changed, I think is both magical and banal. And that's what's really like a lot of things in fiction. You know, we want them to be ordinary and extraordinary at the same time. In your essay, it seems like there's these two in 20th century, 20th slash 21st century, still not quite used to saying 21st century, (laughs) Um, (laughs) still feels like science fiction somehow. But when you're talking about drugs of of those periods from, say, the 40s on, although, of course, you could include Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland in there, but from the 40s, maybe through the 70s or 80s, you kind of talk about them as these earthy sort of dirt seed, you know, grass tree-based drugs to the 21st century version, which is from like an earth-based to a more engineered kind of right. drug. It almost corresponds to sort of an analog and digital. Yes. But I think it's, it's more than that. It's also, it is really rooted, and there's a conscious pun in there, in 
the soil. Whether we're into the drug or scared of it, we tend to associate it with soil or feces or or some plant or you know a mushroom something organic something kind of something organic that grows and might be a toxin you know but it's kind of connected to our fear of nature and also our our excitement at the possibility that we're connected to nature and that there's more there than that human beings either by going into landscapes or by ingesting landscapes might be reconnecting to some kind of more primitive, more tribal, more primal parts of themselves. The idea of the shaman, right, who mm-hmm. who is sort of comes out of a some sort of native milieu and can reconnect us to uh, ancient practice of you know dreaming or 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 uh, spirit walking. And then you definitely get the shift. And I think that the the pivotal fictional drug in my scheme, anyway is the one that Don DeLillo introduces in White Noise, which is a, very much from an experimental pharmacology of, of interventions you know, by science into the human psyche. And they're scary because they come from the top down. They're sort of scientific and they're not of the earth. They're something that's been induced into your, your organic self right. out of science. And they're scary in a, in a different way or, or enticing in a different way. So it goes from sort of fear of nature to fear of the machine. Yeah, well, it's like a post-human desire and dread, absolutely. So what role does Dilar, is that how you pronounce it, the drug in yeah. white noise? What, what's that That's about? I would always say it, Dilar. You know, it doesn't come with a pronunciation uh, <laughs> guide, but it sounds right. And um, it's a very DeLillo concept and a very brilliant, pure, fictional drug, one of the best. It intervenes on your fear of death. So you can kind of go through life without your typical undertow of dread that one day I will die, which on the one hand, it's wonderful because it's so existentially huge. It seems so philosophical and gigantic, but it also, again, touches the everyday. We all walk around at whatever level of conscious apprehension, knowing we are going to die. So what if that sort of, you know, was made incidental? Mm -hmm. If it was just a kind of a footnote instead of a, a heavy part of our experience? And, you know, what, what would that do to our relationships? I mean, you know, there there had been a few probably examples of fictional pharmaceuticals before that. And, you know, one of the great things about publishing an essay like this, it's already out online and I'm getting the corrections. You know, people are, are sending me emails to say, you forgot about this Right. One. Not the corrections, so perhaps, but the additions. <laughs> the additions. Yeah. Chapter two. But I I think that around the time of, of DeLillo's Dilar, you suddenly see writers shifting to this other range. And then, of course, once, I think it's true that once real effective antidepressants enter public consciousness, our need to write about that kind of drug became almost overwhelming. And so you see so many contemporary writers introducing versions like the drugs in the Ben Marcus stories. So, you know, what you see are are drugs that are analogous to and, and, and exaggerations of a kind of current drug regime that we live under where you don't know what kinds of sort of hacks people have applied to their own personalities and to their own temperaments. You could fall in love with someone, let's say, who's had an entire range of their affective response kind of lifted out by, by the careful application of one of these new drugs. And this raises enormous questions about, well, exactly what fiction is here to help us wonder about, where the individual life, (laughs) the life of our desires and our personal psyche, uh, interacts with others, with with the social sphere, with other people who are subjectivities of their own. and, And, you know, what if those have been tampered with or kind of tinkered with? Or, you know, what if you preemptively worked on your own before you went out into the <laughs> into the social arena. It's it's really um it's really something that's part of, you know, our world now. All right, I want to go back to some of the specific drugs. You mentioned the Deborah Eisenberg that collection is your duck is my duck and she has this drug Vernix in the title story of that collection. And then you also talked about Atessa Moschweg, my year of rest and relaxation, the drug in that is in Formiterol. Tell us about Tripazoid. Oh boy, yeah, Tripazoid in David Means' book, Histopia, which is really just an amazing, dark, dark, sort of phantasmagorical, trippy, historical novel. Really hard to characterize, but it does really marvelous things. Tripazoid is 
doing the job of helping Vietnam veterans suppress. I mean, it's related to the to the dialar idea. It's they're they're suppressing traumatic memories so that they can function. Now, this is at a slightly altered timeline where the Vietnam War kind of went on and on and on, and we produced many more generations of damaged psyches than even that war did. The result is that they're walking around with these giant, you know, kind of muted, traumatic zones in their brains, which, you know, like a lot of things that are muted, if you ever listen to like a, a record that, where they've taken out some noise, you can always sort of hear the noise, even if you can't hear it. Mm-hmm. You hear its absence. Of something, being, something being erased is very, the pressure of the absence is very strong. And that's what happens with trypezoid is that they're all walking around like basically these minefields of traumatic memory that they can't access directly, but they still sense them. So this, the, the kind of dread that suffuses the, the psyche is enormous. And there are all kinds of things that can suddenly and unexpectedly reopen the area of traumatic memory, like, let's say, really good sex. Well, this is not a, <laughs> not a great way to be walking around, mm-hmm. to be thinking that any any minute, some traumatic stuff that you can't literally remember, but that is you know, powerfully present in your emotional subconscious might suddenly explode back into your your present life. All right. That's leading very naturally into a book that you wrote, your first novel, Gun with Occasional Music, in which the drug was forget all. You should know the pronunciation. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was very shy about doing more than just gesturing at the fact that I have fictional drugs of my own. But my first novel was full of them. And, and there's actually a, it's kind of a running joke because there's a, a thing called blend in this world of gun with occasional music where you can hand tailor your own kind of amnesia drug. And there are different features of it. You can use a lot of forget all, which is just really good at making you forget stuff. You can use avoid all, which obviously is terrific at helping you just, <laughs> n- you know, not paying that much attention to things. To, Tune them out. To, uh, Right. Just it's instead it of tuning in, it's tuning out. Tune out, yeah. And then there's Believe All, which makes you more gullible. So if you want to listen to the president on the radio in the morning and really feel great about what he said, you know, in, include a very healthy amount of Believe All in your, your personal blend. And so everyone in this world is kind of, you know, taking these different ingredients and trying to balance exactly what sort of consciousness they want to have. You know, it was indebted certainly to, you know, to Philip K. Dick, and I guess to DeLillo as well. But you could have written this whole article just about the 15 or 20 different nightmare fictional drugs that Philip K. Dick introduced over the course of his career. You're spoiled for choice with his work. Philip K. Dick is obviously so influential in so many ways. Do you think that when you look at contemporary fiction, do you see people nodding to that aspect, to these these fictional drugs in these contemporary novels? I do. And of course, sometimes it's indirect. I don't know that everyone, you know, he's become a a kind of a baseline condition for influence in some ways, right? along with someone like Pynchon or DeLillo. And so by now, it can be a common denominator issue. I mean, I think that I've written under Dick's influence very directly. And there may be writers, I know there are younger writers who might not have read him, but came across an idea like, like Forget All in Gun With Occasional Music. And so they're being influenced by him without realizing it. And I think that kind of thing happens. I don't know, for example, whether Fiona Maisel is a huge fan of Philip K. Dick, but her book is very Dickian. And that just makes sense because he has become one of the fundamental paradigms of how we think about this present of ours with the media functioning the way it does and the landscape of politics and, and culture. He was so predictive and so human at the same time, he wrote about what it was like to respond to living in a world like this. So I, I just think his his footprint is all over the place. So uh, the Fiona Maisel, for those who are interested in reading about ARA9, which is the experimental pill in that book, that novel is from 2017, um, a little more human. And I think that very overtly brings up a lot of the underlying themes of these books, which seem to form around a kind of fear of technology and biotechnology specifically and genetic engineering and kind of our human role in this very rapidly changing landscape. And we could talk a lot about that, but I want to end on a fun note because we are on the eve of New Year's Eve here. (laughs) Do any of these drugs sound alluring? And if so, which one? 
Oh gosh, there's the, in that compilation of this new pharmacology, there isn't there isn't one thing I would touch. No, I mean I sort of made a joke at the end of the the essay that now I'm really yearning for some brown acid, which is the famous bad acid that was circulating <laughs> at Woodstock, and I think. If anything, the people I know who are still open to kind of voluntary and experimental dabbling are cycling back to the earthier things. You right. know, they want to. It's kind of like the Michael Pollan moment where people are wanting to grow mushrooms in their basements and and reconnect maybe with something before this technological, what I call the, the digital age of drug trips. All right. Nice vegan, organic, non-GMO drugs for everyone. Exactly. Please get an order from the vegan side of the menu now. (laughs) Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. You bet, Pamela. Nice to talk to you. Jonathan Leatham's latest novel is The Feral Detective. Joining us now to talk about some publishing news, Alexandra Alter, our publishing reporter. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new? So I'm looking forward to 2019, as we all are, sort of what's coming out next year. And one of the fascinating things that's happening in the publishing industry next year is that there is this big shift in copyright. There's a ton of older works that are entering the public domain for the first time this year. And it's actually the first time in two decades that any large body of work has entered the public domain because in 1998, Congress passed this copyright extension, which extended the protection for works published in 19. 23 for another 20 years. So, Why did they do that? Well, uh, that's a great question. A lot of scholars think that that was misguided, that copyright is already excessively long and that it has a negative impact on both the public availability of texts and you, there's even evidence that you know books become less available when they're under copyright because there aren't as many editions of them. They go out of print and they suddenly disappear from the public record. But they uh, essentially were under pressure from you know corporations and publishers and some critics of that extension call it the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because Disney was certainly involved. You know they have some valuable properties that were about to enter the public domain. So how long does copyright last now? So it's a mind-numbingly complicated area, and there's different terms depending on exactly when something was published. It changes after the 70s. But for works that are published in 1923, it was 95 years. It had been 75. And so those works were about to enter the public domain in 1998. And you can imagine how anxious some publishers and literary estates are because when you look at the list of books that are coming out this year and in coming years, it's some of the most important literary works of the 20th century. There's books by Proust, Willa Cather, D.H. Lawrence, P.J. Woodhouse. Agatha Christie, Sigmund Freud, Robert Frost, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, which has sold more than 10 million copies, I believe, or around 10 million copies in the U.S., is going to be in the public domain in 2019. And when you look at the next couple of years, there's some even more significant books, including The Great Gatsby and works by Ernest Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises, Kafka's The Castle, a bunch of really important books are coming out. So explain what this means for regular readers. Like right now, if you are the publisher of of the profit, for example, if the book can only be come out from this one publisher, right? But That's after right. the law expires, does this mean that any publisher can publish the book? And does it mean that you can read it on Google Books or get it on the internet for free? That's that exactly work? right. So once it enters public domain, there is no more protection for it. So that means that anyone with a computer can put up an ebook of it. It means that other publishers can do new editions with new introductions. And we're going to see some new editions of The Prophet. Penguin Classics is doing one. It means that scholars can do new annotated editions. You know, there can be fan fiction published and sold. You know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is one example of a bestseller that came out of a a public domain work. And it means that film producers and theater producers can, you know, do plays and musicals and movies. Without having to buy the rights. Exactly, without having to secure the rights. So this must really affect, I would imagine, both the sort of family estates of these authors, right? Exactly. 
publishers who really rely on backlist titles, especially for schools. That's exactly right. It's kind of astonishing if you look at The Great Gatsby as an example, because that's obviously such a staple in high school curriculums. And it's sold more than 30 million copies worldwide, but it continues to sell half a million copies every year in the U.S. So who's the publisher of that That's book? Scribner. And they have been, um, I think, very careful to preserve their edition. They released a new version this April, sort of in anticipation of the flood of different editions that's almost certainly going to come out when it's in the public domain. And they got a new introduction from the novelist Jesmyn Ward. And they had, you know, they have a scholar, James West, who's a very, you know, respected Fitzgerald scholar going through other books that are going to be coming into the public domain to make sort of what they are hoping will be a touchstone or definitive edition to say to schools, like, this is the one that scholars have approved of. You know, you might find other editions online that have typos or other errors. You can see the effects of this when stuff does go in the public domain. You'll see reviews on Amazon. For example, in the UK, the profit is already in the public domain, and you'll find you know complaints about books with typos or pages that have been photocopied and stapled together. So what happens for the heirs of these various estates or the trustees of their the family trust? Like, do they continue to make money but only off of their original publisher sales? Or how does that work? Or is that that's just kind of the end of any royalties for them? Yeah, I mean, they'll certainly see diminished royalties. There are usually, you know, again, I think the Scribner edition of The Great Gatsby is going to continue to sell just because everyone recognizes that blue cover. It's sort of, you know, what people go to. There's no question that probably sales will shrink a bit. And when you're looking at the estates, royalties will shrink quite a bit, although I'm sure you'll find that, you know, for some film producers or or people that want to do kind of a sanctioned adaptation, it helps to say the estate approved this. Sometimes they'll want additional documents that the estate has in the archives to sort of do more research. So there's ways that they can still stay involved. And obviously those original editions don't just fall off the face of the earth, but it does certainly widen the pool a lot. And so other people are there and ready to profit too and ready to make editions available for free. Google Books has already prepared a bunch of titles. They've already scanned them. And on January 1st, they'll suddenly be available on full view for people. But so while the publisher, the original publisher of each of these books that's going into the public domain stands to lose a lot of money, other publishers will gain overall. And even those original publishers can gain by publishing other newly public domain works. That's exactly right. So a great example is Knopf, which was the original publisher of The Prophet in 1923. It was purchased by Alfred Knopf himself. So they are losing their exclusive rights over that title. But they are also picking up a couple new ones. Vintage Classics, which is their paperback imprint, is going to be doing several Agatha Christie novels this spring, which are newly in the public domain. And they're going to be doing an edition of Robert Frost, New Hampshire, with the original woodcut art. So those are like a handful of titles that they're gaining while they're losing others. And in some ways, you know, it might level the playing field a little bit. And it sounds like it'll be lots of fun for readers, no matter what. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say, there's always hits and misses when adaptations come out and when people start writing sequels and spinoffs. But I'm pretty curious to see what's going to happen, particularly with The Great Gatsby. I mean, I'm anticipating different sequels, musicals, graphic novels. Who knows? It'll be interesting. Something to look forward to in the new year. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Here to talk about what we're reading this week, my colleagues Greg Coles, Emily Aiken, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Pamela. All right. Emily, let's start with you. What are you reading? I'm reading Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup by John Carreyrou. Um, This isn't the kind of book I have to admit that I often read. It's, I guess, technically it's a business book, but it's a pretty gripping and important story. One I think most people know at least the bare outlines of. This is the story of Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, a company once much touted in Silicon Valley, a startup once valued at $9 billion that came crashing down, in part thanks to this dogged reporting by Kerry Rue. So his book, boy, it's a doozy. Each chapter is sort of a variation on a big theme, and the theme is enthusiastic conversion to this company's ideas and the idea of this company, Elizabeth's idea was that she had a device that would revolutionize blood testing. She she would have a, a small machine that could analyze hundreds of blood tests on, based on a finger stick 
and consumers could do this finger stick at Walgreens or at, at home or, or the army could do it on a battlefield. It was such an exciting idea. And each chapter of, of this book shows, you know, a couple dozen characters sometimes who fell for it. So the themes are enthusiastic conversion, followed by some doubts and suspicions that are then sort of rationalized or swept under the carpet. And it's just incredible the number of people who were taken in by what was essentially a fraud. There was no device that could do this. You described it as a business story, but I, I think when it came out, people also just described it as a straight up true crime story because it's all underlaid by fraud. Human tragedy. I'm always curious about books like this, which stem out of reporting Caribou is reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And I think basically all business journalists acknowledge that he owned the story. But I'm curious if it works as a book. It does work as a book. I mean, one of the difficult things is that Holmes herself did not cooperate and she remains a cipher. So um, we're told, I mean, many of the eyewitnesses he interviews talk about her charisma. She was incredibly persuasive in meetings. But as an outsider, it is, it's just dumbfounding to imagine people like former Secretary of State George Shultz or Henry Kissinger being taken in by a woman who would say when someone would ask to see the device in action, oh, it's not ready yet, for years on end. So it works as a book, but there is an enigma that isn't quite resolved at the end. But I think, I think the interest is really, you know, that kind of train wreck of of the sheer numbers of people who fell for this. You just, you keep turning the pages in disbelief. So what I'm reading is Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup by John Carreyrou. All right, speaking of fiction, Greg, what are you reading? I'm still in my extended Ulysses hiatus. I have just gotten completely bogged down in the surreal night town section, which is the written in play form. You're never really quite sure what's going on there, even with study guides. I've always kind of got a study guide open next to me while I'm reading Ulysses. And and the one that I was consulting said, who knows what's real and what's not in this section? It's a give up. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's... Oh, Chris- you have one of my very favorites in front of you. When I'm on vacation from... Ulysses, I like to read kind of small digestible chunks. So essays or stories, and right now it's stories, and they are Irish stories. So I'm obviously working my way back to Ulysses. This is the book Last Stories by William Trevor, who died a couple of years ago, and this is indeed his last story collection. You know, William Trevor is a very different kind of Irish writer from James Joyce. He's clear and almost journalistic, almost aloof in his... He writes about kind of great human passion and frailty and vulnerability, a lot of kind of blame and self-blame and stuff going on in, in these stories. But he does it almost clinically. I mean, what he's able to write about these great kind of melodramatic situations by stepping back right in the very first page of the book in the first story, a few paragraphs in, there's a line, she had known the passion of love. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it, to him it's all this kind of, thing to be studied from afar. Um, but then he, it's it's this free and direct style. He's able to dip in and give you kind of more of the character's judgments and, and kind of seething neuroses also. Um, and he just moves in and out of that. So um, I, I really love William Trevor. I've loved him for a long time. Again, the title of this is actually true to William Trevor's writing style. It's very descriptive and plain. Last stories, sadly, last stories by William Trevor. Yeah, he's, I really don't care about prizes, but I still hold kind of a grudge that he never won the Nobel. <laughs> it's it's true. Although the Alice Munro Nobel is almost an honorary William Trevor Nobel. They're, yes. they're very similar kinds of writers. And um, once she won it, I gave up on it. So yeah. at least it, it, it let me stop worrying yeah. every year. I knew he wasn't going to win it. John, what are you reading? Uh, I am reading a British novelist named Samantha Harvey, her new book, which is called The Western Wind. This is her fourth novel, and I think that in the UK, her reputation is growing here, but I think she's been established there for a while. She's been nominated for the Booker and the Orange Prize and other big prizes, and The Guardian has called her an exquisite stylist, and The Telegraph called her This Generation's Virginia Woolf, which I feel like not every generation gets a Virginia Woolf, so maybe we don't don't have to say that. But she is a terrific writer. This story, I, I think... James Wood reviewed her last book, Dear Thief, in The New Yorker, which was, I think, a little bit more experimental in the form of a long letter to an old friend, and it was a bit more diffuse and didn't really land on any one plot. This is very plot-heavy in a way. It starts with 
It's set in 1491 in a small English town called Oakham, and a priest named John Reeve is in charge of this flock of, you know, hard-bitten villagers. And one day, one of the young men in the flock wakes him up in the middle of the night and says, I found a dead body in the river, stuck in a tree. And when they go back to see the body, the body has floated away. But they think they know who it was who died, and now they have to find out. They suspect that someone may have murdered him. And so the priest talks to a lot of the villagers in confession. Uh, You slowly learn about their backstories through that, and you also learn about who may or may not have done this. And so there's definitely a murder mystery feeling to it. But she's also like the comparisons that people talk about. Well, she's a very interior writer. I've seen people compare her to Marilyn Robinson, and there's definitely an interest in, you know, human spiritual behavior. And there are, you know, lyrical passages that are more about that than about the plot and the murder. Um, so it's a nice combination of those things. And so far, I'm about halfway through it. I'm really enjoying it. And I think I'll go back and read her other books, too. So that's Samantha Harvey's fourth novel, recently published, The Western Wind. Pamela, what are you reading? I know you're really engaged by something right now. Yeah, so I talked about this a little bit last week when I interviewed Isabel Wilkerson about her review of Michelle Obama's memoir. And I'm reading her book, The Warmth of Other Suns. I don't know if I've ever used this phrase in conversation. I've never used it in a book review, even though it's, I think, too frequently used in book reviews. But this book is a tour de force. It really is. I think it's Definitely going to be on my list of 10 best nonfiction books of all time. It's a history of the Great Migration, and she tells it expertly. The The storytelling is magnificent. The history is fascinating. At every page, you want to stop and read it aloud to whoever's sitting next to you. She focuses on three characters, and um, the characters migrate to the north in three different decades, one in the 30s, one in the 40s, and one in the 50s. And so through these three stories, she covers what was going on in African-American culture and history at that time during three pivotal decades in the South, and then brings them north and looks at how African-Americans were treated in Chicago, in New York, and in Los Angeles. And it's a version of history that I can't help but feel, frankly, angry that I never got, never got as a history major, never got, even though I grew up in New York where we were taught American history basically every year, you know, beginning in elementary school, and none of this was ever covered. The version that you got was that the Civil War ended, that people were still prejudiced in the South, that the sort of the Union forces came down and there were carpetbaggers. That's sort of the one phrase you remember. And then they left and that there was still a segregation in the South and it continued up until the Civil Rights Movement, which, of course, is no, almost none of which is true. I mean, it leaves out entire decades of Reconstruction, which was, you know, covered just sporadically. And also on the other end, that the, you know, the way that you learn African-American history and history in general in the North is that, you know, oh, the North was always better. It makes me feel, you know, angry over not only the way that history is taught in, in schools and probably it's gotten better, but I don't know how much better it's gotten. But even, you know, having taken an African-American studies course in college, the way that African-American studies was taught then, at least in that class at that time, which was in the 90s, which was as a kind of series of kind of great men, mostly men, and some intellectual movements without any discussion of sort of this this larger tapestry of, of, of history. And, and Isabel Wilkerson just does all of that in this book. It's You feel like you're finally getting a real version of history from, you know, 1865 up through today. And I want to read one tiny passage. Again, you could read something aloud from every page, but one of the amazing things about this book is that, of course, Isabel Wilkerson, who is a Chicago resident, she comes from a family of migrants. Her mother moved up from the South. And she's talking in this passage about how, at the time, it was really hard, especially for African-American women, to get any work in Chicago, that you were already competing against the Germans, the Poles, the Ukrainians, all of the various white immigrant groups who were there, in addition to the white workers, that there were unions, and that basically the men could get employed perhaps as scabs during a strike and then, of course, be subject to total ostracization, not to mention just be fired once the union goes back to work. But that for women, it was incredibly difficult. And what women would often do is sort of stand on certain corners at the margins of a white neighborhood and wait for people to come and essentially, in a kind of slave market way, 
auction off their services as domestics just for the day with no guarantee that they would be paid even the bargain-based price that they were, you know, whittled down to and often total exploitation. And then it was on a day-by-day basis. They were, you know, basically day laborers. And if a white woman needed a domestic and didn't have one, she could sort of count on calling out to a black woman walking down the street and expect that that person would be available. So there's a a passage in here I want to read from. Colored domestics could not know what perils they might face from opportunistic sons or husbands, assuming that younger domestics would do more than just clean. As it was, the very act of walking the streets for work came awfully close in appearance to how prostitutes plied their trade, except that the domestics were working at the whims of Jane's rather than John's. The expectation that any colored woman walking in the white section of town was available to scrub floors and wash windows would continue into the 1960s, such that a colored professional woman appearing in a white neighborhood in the North had to be prepared to be called out to just because she was black. Say, girl, a woman called out to my mother in the late 1950s when she was on her way in her tailored suit and heels to decorate and fit slipcovers in Cleveland Park, a wealthy neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Could you come up here and clean my bathroom? I'm looking for someone to clean mine, my mother yelled back to the woman. <laughs> so you can see where Isabel Wilkerson gets her spirits. So. Is is The Warmth of Other Suns her first book? It is her first book. It's her only book so far. I think she's working on another one. This came out in 2010. And I think she's been, you know, basically very sought after on the speaking circuit ever since. And you can tell why, because she's really the only person to have taken, to have amassed this you know, huge history into a single volume and something that is often sort of sporadically referred to in other books, whether they're about Jim Crow or about a particular city. I mean, one of the things I'm just shocked by is that this hasn't been turned into a documentary Mm -hmm. miniseries because so many of these migrants are still alive, this generation, and, 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 and their children. And now would be the time to hear these voices. So well, hopefully it's in the ho- Hopefully works. this book is being taught now. I imagine it is. So that's helping to solve some of the problems. Oh, yeah. I think it should be required reading in every high school. It's just that good. So we'll end with that. <laughs> it's going to be required reading around here because you're that's making right. everyone want to read <laughs> Next this. Next on my <laughs> list. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.